0: welcome to the wittenberg hour gk chesterton said true contentment is a thing as active as agriculture it is the power of getting out of any situation all that there is in it it is arduous and it is rare it is the discipline of epiphany hello and welcome to the wittenberg hour where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is epiphany? How might epiphany be observed in the home? Joining us today to discuss observing epiphany in the home is Mr. Justin Benson. Mr. Benson serves as president of Wittenberg Academy and also teaches vocation and stewardship for Wittenberg Academy. Mr. Benson, thank you for joining us today.
1: It's a joy to be here.
0: The holly and the jolly have moved along until next year, but the church is still celebrating. What is she celebrating and why?
1: As we continue through this time of the year, the church transitions from Christmas into Epiphany. During Christmas, we celebrate that God became man, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what the readings have to do with. That's what the hymnody has to do with. God becomes man. But as we transition into Epiphany, we start to ponder how that man has revealed himself to be God in, in the acts of his life, in the way he's worshipped, etc. So Epiphany becomes a sort of Christmas for us Gentiles.
0: So more specifically, how does the church observe Epiphany?
1: So Epiphany, the the epiphany of our Lord, the actual feast day proper, is January 6th. So the church has 12 days of Christmas starting on December 25th going through January 5th. So we typically go to church on December 24th, the evening, because Christmas Day starts after dark. On the 24th, well, the same way for epiphany, on the evening of January 5th, that's when that transition starts into from Christmas to epiphany. It's a very seamless transition, uh, the way the church does it. So on January sixth, the gospel reading is the visit of the Magi from the east. They, they stop by Jerusalem because, of course, that's where the king of the Jews would be. But they find out that he is born in Bethlehem, from the prophet Micah. So the Sunday after Epiphany, or the first Sunday after the Epiphany of our Lord, historically has been The one account in scripture of Jesus between his birth, or between when he was a very young child, a baby, and him being an adult. The 12-year-old Jesus goes with his parents to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, and he stays in his father's house while his earthly parents head home. And on the third day, they remember or realize that they've lost Jesus. So they go back to the temple and find him teaching in his father's house. Now many of our churches right now will actually observe the baptism of our Lord on that first Sunday. The baptism of our Lord proper would be would have been celebrated on the octave of the epiphany, so the eighth day after January 6th. And if you count evenings and and days, the eighth day is actually one week later because you always count the current day also. Uh, We don't do math like we Americans do. So we would say it's seven days, uh, January 13th and the 6th, but it is is eight days. The way the church counts, the baptism of our Lord is observed by the church on January 13th, but we transfer that to the Sunday uh, right after the Epiphany, typically. One thing to remember about the baptism of our Lord, it is one of those accounts that is in all four Gospels. There aren't very many accounts that are in all four Gospels, but the baptism of our Lord is one of those accounts. So then on the second Sunday of Epiphany, Jesus' first miracle, or his primary miracle, is, is read. And that is the wedding at Cana, where our Lord turns water into wine. So what you end up having is the three primary accounts of our Lord that are part of Epiphany are the visit of the Magi, our Lord's baptism, and his miracle at Cana. So those three are really the kind of the cream of the crop of of the accounts during the season of Epiphany. And then there are more Sundays in Epiphany, and it depends which lectionary your church uses. If you use the one year lectionary, you have what we call gesimatide or pre-Lent. Those three Sundays before Ash Wednesday that are kind of transitional that bridge the gap between Epiphany and Lent. If you use the three-year lectionary, you go all the way up until the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. So there are other Sundays typically, but sometimes you could have a situation where you have the Epiphany of our Lord and then the following Sunday's baptism and then the next Sunday's transfiguration, which brings me into the next point that I want to make. The last Sunday of Epiphany, we Lutherans celebrate the transfiguration of our Lord. Now this was transferred during the Reformation. It was in August, historically, uh, but this was a great innovation that our Lutherans brought brought to the table. I think this is our token. Uh, we talk about an innovation that we like during this episode, opportunity, but the transfiguration, moving to the last Sunday of Epiphany is a very good place to have it to kind of cap off the season of Epiphany. Some of the saint days that we have during Epiphany include St. Timothy and St. Titus, St. Timothy on the 24th of January, St. Titus on the 26th, and then right in between Timothy and Titus is the conversion of St. Paul. So very much an office of the holy ministry theme right, right there in those three days. So certainly take the opportunity in your home to teach your children about those three uh, very important New Testament saints. And, you know, it doesn't take long to read the book of Titus or one of Paul's letters to Timothy. They're fairly short, so you could you could read those on one of those days if, if you so desire. And then on February 2nd, which sometimes falls during Epiphany proper, uh, sometimes falls during that uh, pre-Lent or Gesimatide, uh, the 40th day after Christmas, the Purification of Mary and the Presentation of Our Lord, or Candlemas. Uh, some of your churches may observe that on the day. If they do, that's a, a, another great opportunity to go to Our Lord's house. Uh, it's oftentimes called Candlemas. You have that language in the Nuke Dominus which this is the gospel reading is from Luke 2. Uh, where our Lord's presented in the temple. You have Simeon and Anna there waiting. It's a very similar reading to that first Sunday after Christmas that we discussed last time. Oftentimes, this is a candle lit service because of the light, light in the Gentiles, that language in the Duke de Minas.
0: You know, thinking about all of the feast days, commemorations, the readings that we hear in church. They all seem to be very revealing, which seems to fit very nicely with the season of Epiphany. I'm sure that's probably intentional.
1: Epiphany, I don't think we define what the word Epiphany means, but Epiphany does mean manifestation or revelation or revealing. And this this is what these readings do. They reveal who Jesus is. It becomes very important for us to more fully understand who who our Lord is.
0: The, the full experience of all of these readings and the feasts and commemorations, the full experience of that gives us a more full picture of who Jesus is. To just, you know, pick and choose these readings. I mean, the church has really done a magnificent job of giving this to us. I mean, I say this all the time. I just, I love the church year and how it really brings us along year after year after year and and orders our days in his peace. And sometimes these seasons that aren't as celebrated or noticed by the world Sometimes we in the church sometimes take our cues from the world and don't notice them as much. But this is quite fantastic. Just thinking about what's coming next. You mentioned the gesimatide that comes after epiphany. There is such comfort in these readings in Epiphany that prepares us, you know, if Jesus wasn't who he was, he can't do everything that comes after.
1: It's interesting as, as Christmas winds down, and sometimes the world will keep some sort of a celebration of the holidays going until January 1st. Watch your college football bowl games. And then it's time to, Buy gym memberships. Make your New Year's resolutions for a few days. NFL playoffs start. Start time to start thinking about the Super Bowl. Uh, everyone's getting back to work, and the season of epiphany becomes this time of the year where it's just back to back to normal, whatever that means. It's back to school if you're going to school. And I remember that as as a when I was a child, and we'd have Christmas break, and then we tend to go back to school and be back to work back to work. And I remember Epiphany season, but I don't remember much more about it than that. But there's a, there's a lot to it, and the church doesn't cease her feasting and her celebrating. And we need to bring bring that into our homes too, and keep and keep the celebratory feasting theme going. And there are things we can do to do that.
0: So, what are some of these ways that we can bring these observances of the church? of Epiphany into the home.
1: Epiphany is a great, a great season for that. And the church has recognized that over the centuries. It's a time to ponder marriage and family and home. You think about you think about the gospel readings of Epiphany. The Magi visited Jesus in a house, right? And his family was with him. The boy Jesus was in his father's house uh, and his parents came back to to get him, right? And his first miracle was at a wedding. So there's there's this theme of marriage and family and home uh, throughout those readings. So one of the traditions the church has done during the season of Epiphany is the very fine, pious custom of house blessings. So take this opportunity to ask your pastor to come over and do a house blessing at your home during Epiphany so your word can be sanctified by the word of God and, and prayer. And this can be done every year. This is something that should be done when you move, for example, if you move into a new home, to have a house blessing done. And the first time the the pastor does the house blessing in your home, he'll go into every room and bless every room. And there are different scripture readings that he would read, depending on if it's a a kitchen or a dining room or a living room or a bedroom or a study, uh, depending on what those rooms are used for. So this, this is a great opportunity to do a house blessing.
0: And this house blessing that you bring up, this used to be a pretty common thing. We don't hear about this a whole lot anymore, but this used to be pretty common.
1: I grew up in in South Dakota and it seems like in South Dakota, there modernism is about a generation behind there and it's, it's attack on us and it's an advancement. So things are there like they, they were 25 years ago in most other places in the U.S. But I remember in the congregation I grew up in, it was kind of expected that the pastor came and visited people uh, regularly, but that's very difficult to do in places where people are more transient. We move much more than we used to. It used to be very common for just regular folks just to drop by your house even without calling Um, homes used to be designed, you know, you had a parlor right in the house that room was kept clean and you lived in the rest of your house, right? Where things weren't always tidy and neat. And you were able to entertain guests on, on, on the drop of a hat and you had people at home, right? Certainly women were more likely to be, be at home and even the men ran a business or farmed or whatever out of the home. And you think even our even our modern homes with these open floor plans with the kitchen being exposed to everything, you can't really have a mess anywhere. Like if you're preparing food without the guests noticing. So our homes are not designed to bring guests in. So I think that has affected the church in terms of of the pastor dropping by and visiting people as well. And just we're just not as home home as often. So maybe that's something we can recover a little bit in our homes and thinking about hospitality and uh, inviting guests over and, and using our homes to be a place where we welcome welcome in guests
0: so in addition to the house blessing in addition to pondering hospitality and and ways that that we can perhaps open our homes more. What are some other things that we can do?
1: I would recommend leaving your Christmas tree up until February 2nd, if that's possible. If you have a, a real tree, that's probably not going to work. Um, but if you have an artificial tree or you have a real tree and you put it up on December 24th, you may be able to keep it up that long. We don't want you to burn your house down. It'd be hard to be hospitable to people if you had your house burned <laughs> right. down, right? Right. Uh, there's also a uh, sing a Christmas carol every day until February 2nd. And I think there's a, about the right number of Christmas hymns in Lutheran service book that you could sing one a day every day from December 25th until February 2nd. And then open the next section of your hymnal up, the Epiphany section, and sing some of those hymns as well. And we could take a look at a few of those if, if you want to.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think the epiphany hymn that rises to the top is O Morning Star, How Fair and Bright, the Queen of the Lutheran Corals, written by Philip Nicolai. The tune was also written by Nicolai. And this is the hymn of the day for the epiphany of our Lord. It's also can be used as the hymn of the day for the transfiguration of our Lord. And I think it's also the hymn of the day for the annunciation of our Lord. So it, it really rises to the top as a... A hymn of the day for several feast days, but it's just a sublime hymn. So, a brief description from the book Christmas Spirit of this hymn Philip Nicolai served as a Lutheran pastor in a church in Una when a terrible pestilence swept through his village. The plague claimed over 1,300 victims and struck terror into the hearts of the villagers. As many as 30 burials took place a day in the churchyard next to the parsonage. It was one morning when the tragedy and distress weighed especially heavy on him that Nikolai began to write the words and music to this hymn, describing the joys of heaven and the Savior's love. It is known as the Queen of Corrals and was used by Felix Mendelssohn in his Christus and was harmonized by Johann Sebastian Bach. So the hymn really draws from Old Testament prophecies of the Christ and it goes all the way till the end times and what we have to look forward in, in Christ and the proclamation of that, of that word. It's it's just a marvelous hymn, beautiful tune that was also composed by Nikolai,
0: And that connects us to what we just not that long ago considered in the season of Advent, Jesus' comings, you know, that he came as a child that we just celebrated his incarnation that he comes to us now in word and sacrament and he will come again
1: yes yeah the, it this this hymn really comes full circle back around and encompasses all of that and it it's just such a joyful hymn to sing it's just bursting with joy and even as you get towards the end of it Uh, Sing out, ring out, jubilation, exaltation, tell the story, great is he, the king of glory.
0: And I have to point out, because we're still in 2020, I have to point out and emphasize, he wrote this in the midst of a plague.
1: Yeah, and a plague that really was very deadly. And
0: that 1300, that was just in his village.
1: That was in his parish.
0: That was in his parish. That was
1: in his parish, which was probably the village also. But yeah, I mean, we're living in a pandemic right now. And we may know some people who tragically have died from COVID. But I think, and, and we have modern medicine. They didn't. I think a lot of these plagues that hit Europe in the that time would have been much less just due to modern sanitation practices, et cetera. But this joy burst out from from that, from a plague. So we might be able to have a little bit of a picture of what that was like. Um,
0: But I think that comes from that perspective that we know that this life is not the end-all be-all.
1: Exactly. And this hymn, I think it's interesting. I think it should be sung at every Lutheran wedding are going to have a big wedding, sing this hymn. It's a great wedding hymn, but it's also a great funeral hymn. It's, it's remarkable. If you look at the multiple feast days where you can sing this hymn. You can sing this hymn during those last Sundays of the church year when you're pondering the end times. You can sing it for the Annunciation. You can sing it for Epiphany. You can sing it at a wedding. You can sing it at a funeral. It is a marvelous hymn that's that's very flexible and is just packed with joy. The joy we have in Christ, despite whatever's going on in the world. Plagues, pestilences, wars, living in the reality of our own sin and the mess we've made of our lives. But it, but it's a great hymn. Sing this. This should be a hymn that you should commit to memory. and You should have your children commit to memory. It's that important. Uh, it, it's It's up there in the top five Lutheran hymns that we have, if not above that.
0: This joy and celebration and rejoicing doesn't end. Our next hymn continues that same theme.
1: This hymn is an English hymn, but it's it's a hymn that's well-known by us American Lutherans. It was in Luther the Lutheran hymnal. It's in Lutheran service book. It's probably maybe even more commonly known by... American Lutheran's then O Morning Star as an Epiphany hymn, Songs of Thankfulness and Praise. And, and one thing I really like about this hymn is it really kind of connects the different gospel accounts in the season of Epiphany together. So the first stanza really pulls in The Visit of the Magi. The second stanza pulls in Manifest at Jordan's Dream, Prophet, Priest, and King Supreme. So the baptism of our Lord. And at Cana, wedding guest, in the Godhead manifest, manifest in power divine, changing water into wine. So it pulls in the the wedding piece at Cana. It pulls in other miracles that our Lord has done, manifest in making whole palsied limbs and fainting soul, manifest in valiant fight, quelling all the devil's might, manifest in gracious will, ever bringing good from ill. And then every stanza ends in. God and man made manifest. So it really pulls in those themes of epiphany. It does a nice job. It's kind of like, it's very similar to Angels from the Realms of Glory, Hymn 367, which I think it's a Christmas hymn, but I think part of it is really kind of can be transferred into epiphany as well and into the purification of Mary and the presentation of our Lord. Actually, I think in TLH, it was in the section of the presentation section rather than the Christmas section. Well, that that hymn speaks of all the different people who visited Jesus. So uh, shepherds, sages, and then saints in the temple for 367 Angels from the Realms of Glory. I'm getting distracted here. But from God the Father, Virgin Born, Hymn 401, that is a much older hymn, a Latin hymn that is much more theological, kind of like a morning star compared to Songs of Thankfulness and Praise. From God the Father, virgin-born, to us the only Son came down, by death the font to consecrate, the faithful to regenerate, is the first uh, line of that. But that is another hymn that was translated by John Mason Neal. We owe him a debt of gratitude for it. It has a beautiful tune. Uh, I think it's sang on the third Sunday of Advent as the hymn of the day. And then Luther's baptism hymn, to Jordan came the Christ our Lord, which... Our churches sing on the baptism of our Lord, a great catechetical hymn, another hymn that we should really commit to memory, learn it by heart. It has very, very good theology of baptism that the Bible teaches. And then finally, uh, the last hymn that I'd like to look at here is Alleluia, Song of Gladness, which isn't really an Epiphany hymn. It's in the Transfiguration section of the hymnal. But this hymn actually would be sung on the last day of Epiphany, the Saturday before Septagesma. That's when we bid our alleluias goodbye. We're heading into Lent. We will not sing alleluias again until Easter. So we bid our alleluias goodbye with this hymn, Alleluia, Song of Gladness. Uh, 417 Lutheran Service Book. So you can sing that in your home on the Saturday evening prior to Septuagesima. Your church may have sang it on Transfiguration Sunday as well.
0: So once again, we have just a beautiful heritage of hymnody that we sing these hymns in church, but we shouldn't leave them there. We should absolutely bring them into our homes, include them in our catechetical life. One of my favorite things about teaching children hymns is that they sing them. They'll wander around the house and they'll wander around the yard singing these hymns. And they're a fantastic, not only a fantastic confession, but they're also a fantastic reminder for us in terms of what we as parents should be pondering throughout our days.
1: It's remarkable how children pick up on these. And these are hymns that Maybe we don't think children will like, but they, they love them. So teach them to your children.
0: I want to bring us back to these hymns we discussed and listen to these hymns to have them in the front of our minds as we proceed forward to Epiphany. we're singing in our homes what are some other traditions that we can observe in our homes that keep this epiphany celebration at the fore
1: well there are foods for whatever reason our english and even our german ancestors didn't celebrate epiphany as as highly as other cultures have and Spanish and Portuguese countries, especially Latin America, uh, Epiphany is almost a bigger day than Christmas. So maybe pulling from some of their foods and traditions would be a okay thing to do. Now they're typically Roman Catholic, so you have to be a little bit careful about some of those things. And I think there's some superstition that comes in on some of the things that they do. But go ahead and use their recipes. It's a nice change up from our northern European hotness and food. There's a Rosca de Reyes. It's a it's a three king's bread that comes from Spanish and Portuguese countries. A lot of uh, Mexican-Americans will make this or buy this or have this, but it's kind of a sweet bread with different types of dried fruit in it. It's shaped in a circle like a like a crown or a king. And then generally a, a figurine of a baby would be baked into the, into the bread. And whoever ended up getting the piece of bread that had that uh, figurine would end up having to make tamales for Candlemas. So you can have tamales on Candlemas. And then also crepes is another traditional food to have on Candlemas. So you can have, the crepes can either be savory or sweet depending on what you put on them. So those are, are things that you can do. Another uh, traditional food for Epiphany is mincemeat. Unfortunately, mincemeat mince takes a few weeks to make, so it'd be hard to have it on the Epiphany of our Lord if, if you started making it now but that has a lot of spices in it. So that's one of the uh, historical, because spices were one of the things that were brought to our Lord on Epiphany. So there are some foods you can have. Another thing you can do is if, if you can spread out your gift opening for Christmas, depending on how many gifts your children have and how that all works in your family. It might be too late to do that this year again, but just spreading stuff out. And that maybe makes us a little bit less exhausted during this time of the year. We don't have to do everything on one day or two days, but spread things out in your home, keep the joy going, keep the special food going as you're able to and and continue to celebrate. One last thing that I, I didn't mention, and I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but the 12th night party is on January 5th. And that if you if you have guests or friends over during this time of the year, try doing that on January 5th, if you're able to. And that's a time where you can play games, sing, have special food, et cetera. And again, keep this, this thing going uh, during, the, during the season proper.
0: And another opportunity, not that we have to have necessarily special observances to also be hospitable, but it's another opportunity perhaps to get us in the habit of hospitality.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Now, am I remembering correctly that Twelfth Night parties sometimes took place from house to house, or is that something else?
1: I think that's a possibility where multiple people would host them and you move around. Now, that's maybe would be kind of difficult to do if the 12th, January fifth, is on a weekday, and you know people are we're, we're not in our homes like we used to be. Um, But that's something that can be done depending on how wassail is a traditional drink. So here we go wassailing or there's some Christmas carol that sounds like that or something. So there are different things you can do and and you may have to modify them to fit your life and the way we Americans think. But be countercultural. You know, keep, keep, keep your tree up. Keep singing Christmas carols. Sing epiphany hymns in your home. Invite people over. Have your house blessed. Uh, make special foods, do those things.
0: Of all the seasons of the church year we have discussed on the Wittenberg Hour, Epiphany is most likely the most overlooked by Christians, especially Christians in the United States. At the end of the day, why should we still endeavor to keep Epiphany in our homes?
1: Well, Christ has manifested himself to us. He came for us and Christmas is a big deal and we should celebrate Christmas to its full gusto but it's not the whole enchilada and we need to continue to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus is also man but Jesus is God and it's important that we confess both of those things uh, equally and Epiphany pulls us back and reminds us of of the miracles our Lord has done. And it is a nice transitional season as we head into into Lent and as we start pondering our Lord's death and resurrection. Um, So celebrate Epiphany to all gusto and all joy and ponder who our Lord is.
0: And maybe having tamales on Candlemas will remind us that Christmas isn't the whole enchilada.
1: There you go. There you go.
0: (laughs) Mr. Justin Benson serves as president of Wittenberg Academy. Justin, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.